Now, let's get to our top story of the day by looking actually back to the past. Here is then-Democratic nominee hopeful Hillary Clinton at the DNC debate back in 2016. The only people that I would ever appoint to the Supreme Court are people who believe that Roe v. Wade is settled law and Citizens United needs to be overturned. And I want to say something about this since we're talking about the Supreme Court and what's at stake. We've had eight debates before. This is our ninth. We've not had one question about a woman's right to make her own decisions about reproductive health care. Not one question. And in the meantime, we have states, governors, doing everything they can to restrict women's rights. And shock is very much settling in for millions and millions of Americans and citizens around the world, frankly, particularly women who are processing Friday's stunning U.S. Supreme Court overturning of Roe versus Wade, 50 years of precedent, keeping safe termination of early pregnancy legal. And most importantly, really here, the decision of the woman. Now, while there are states where safe abortions will continue to be legally available for women in need or wanting to terminate a pregnancy, in some states, abortion is already banned. Eight states, Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Utah, and will be banned in six additional states within a month, Idaho, Mississippi, North Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming. Yes. We're going to take you live right now to one of those states, to Tennessee, in fact. That's where we find Global National Washington, D.C. correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good to talk with you, Reggie. Thanks for doing this. Good morning. Let's begin on Friday because we've had some time to sort of doom scroll our way through. Many of us, certainly I have been. I've had to take some mental breaks over the course of the week, and I feel like the clock has been turned back in a very scary way. Take us through what happened on Friday, if you will. So essentially what happened on Friday was the U.S. Supreme Court um, decided to fall in line with a leaked draft that had been put out uh, earlier in the year, leaked by Politico, uh, that put the writing on the wall that Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned uh, and handed back to uh, the states so that uh, legislatures would be the ones making the decision for residents of each individual state. And that became a flashpoint on the streets across the United States uh, with people who are for abortion rights fearful that rights are being taken out of their own hands. Well, on the flip side, people who are anti-abortion say that this is something that they had been fighting for, for a moral direction for the country to be walking down for decades. Okay, Reggie, so no surprise, given the fact that that leaked uh, Supreme Court first draft or draft of uh, the plan to overturn, how has the appointing of... Um, more conservative Supreme Court justices played into this. I mean, there, there's definitely a bit of a victory lap being done by the, you know, Mitch McConnell's of the world here. I was watching, I was flipping between CNN and MSNBC and, and Fox News and the, the uh, reaction very different depending on the news outlet you go to in the United States, but certainly it's resonating here in Canada. Um, with regard to, you know, how did we expect that this wasn't happening? It's been, as I played in that Hillary Clinton 
clip, something that has definitely been a concern of those in the know for quite some time. Uh, I mean, yeah, and a victory lap also taken by the former president uh, on the weekend, uh, who was responsible for putting three of those conservative justices on the court. And I think some of the criticism right now is being directed to some Republican lawmakers, namely uh, Susan Collins out of Maine, typically uh, on the more moderate side of the Republicans, uh, because she is the one who who faced the most significant pushback for her um, nominating, uh, rather for her uh, confirming votes for someone like Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh, uh, when the issue of Roe was brought up during those Supreme Court uh, hearings, asking if precedent in this country should be respected and should remain in place. And while they were carefully worded answers using very kind of legal heavy responses, the, the nominees at that point said that they had intended to keep the precedent where it was, not saying that they wouldn't overturn it in the future. So the, the concern that you heard from Hillary Clinton, the concern that's existed for decades, even was of a concern just a couple of years ago during these hearings. Okay, so we've got the former president taking a victory lap on stacking the court with conservative justices who went through their confirmation hearing process by stating that this was precedence and then overturning it. Um, we'll get into the ramifications of that and perhaps a slippery slope ahead, but let's talk what can or cannot be done by current president Joe Biden when it comes to uh, what we've seen happen here. Like you said, it, it becomes less of a federal issue and more of a state by state situation, right? Yeah, and and look, last Friday, um, when the president said that the, the Supreme Court's decision uh, was wrong, uh, something he echoed on the weekend, and we heard from Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, saying that the rights of Americans were being eviscerated. Realistically, the White House is limited in what uh, in what they can do via executive action out of the Oval Office, and ultimately, this becomes a matter of. Congress needing to be able to band together and codify abortion rights into law. They tried to do that earlier in the year, uh, and they were blocked by Republicans. There just isn't uh, enough support amongst the current Democratic makeup. Even if they were to, to try and do it on their own, they don't have internal support to break the filibuster. So, so Democrats are really kind of up against a wall here. There has been some conversations at the federal level from the Department of Justice to say that um, that they will try to stand in the way of any state that blocks a woman from being able to leave the state to get an abortion. There's been talk about criminal charges that way because interstate travel is um, a federally protected right. There's also the matter of abortion via mail with pills that can be purchased. Some states are trying to ban that and make it illegal, but that's a federally regulated and federally approved program. So while the Supreme Court decision has come down, this is likely going to lead to more and more federal cases going to court um, to try and allow for women at least to be protected again by federal things that exist in this country. This is such a Pandora's box, Reggie. Let's circle back to the filibuster piece of this, because there are some people who are saying, why have the steps not been taken to, to allow for the reflection of the wants of citizens in the United States? Talk about the polling on the court's decision. Let's start there, because there's huge disapproval for this move on Friday from, a, from a, an overall hundreds and hundreds of millions of people's perspective in the United States. Is that tr fact? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the court's decision, um, you know, a minority of people in the country being six unelected justices uh, are on the wrong side of popular opinion. Depending on, on the polls, they all kind of average out between 59 and 65 percent of the American public, including independents and Republicans and Democrats, didn't have a problem with Roe uh, and would have left Roe in place, yet you had the court 
go ahead and overturn that. And when you break that down, there are far more Democrats and then even far more women uh, who wanted to see abortion rights remain the law of the land. So this really was a judicial decision that had, uh, you know, the quiet part behind it being the the right wing political push to move the court in this direction. That's really why there's been so much back and forth over, you know, the court being independent when it really seems to have been um, influenced by uh, by Republican policy uh, to try and 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 take these rights away. And as we've heard from the anti-abortion groups, bring the country into a morally correct direction, even though that direction is not where the majority of people wanted the country to go. So when the majority of the people didn't want the country to go in that direction and the current president uh, feels that this is a is a bad decision, um, when we're looking at the makeup of the decision makers uh, that did put these uh, conservative justices in place who have overturned Roe versus Wade, and you're talking about the filibuster, for many Canadians, we, we get deep in the weeds on, on how things work in the United States. Is there a simple way of explaining the filibuster and what would need to happen in order to, as you mentioned, the word codify uh, Roe versus Wade into law in protecting safe and legal abortions in the United States and at a federal level as it was? The quick and yeah, the quick and dirty of it is the filibuster means you need to have 60 votes in order to get over debate and, and put something to a vote. And if you don't have 60 votes, uh, then debate technically goes on forever uh, and it will never make its way to the floor for a vote. You can break the filibuster uh, by a simple majority by saying, look, 50 Democrats plus one vote of the vice president will break the filibuster. Republicans did that to allow for Supreme Court nominees to be pushed through with just a simple majority. Democrats don't have the support. They have 50 Democrats, but two of them do not want to remove the filibuster for a varying number of reasons. And because of that, Democrats are reliant on Republicans joining their side if they want to get things done. In this political climate, it simply doesn't happen often enough. And because of that, Democrats can't get even, um, you know, laws that would be highly popular amongst the American public. They can't get it done simply because they don't have the support externally in Republicans and internally with their own party. Don't kill your baby. Don't kill your baby. No was overturned. This is illegal. This is ground zero. Babies are being murdered here. All right, that sound from Alabama over the weekend, heckling of anti-abortion protesters at women entering the very clinic where Roe versus Wade's battle began more than 50 years ago. We continue with Global Washington, uh, gl- sorry, Global Nationals Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini, who is in Tennessee right now. And Reggie, uh, lots of uh, reaction. Uh, I'd love to get some updates uh, from your, uh, you know, that's been one very crazy busy weekend, but I can imagine Tennessee must be ultra tense. Yeah, and I mean, look, this is a, a state right now that's actively in court at this hour at an appeals court um, uh, to try and overturn existing laws to bring abortion uh, bans in place after six weeks. And that's ahead of what will be uh, a total and complete ban that comes in place because it is a trigger law state in the next couple of weeks. And what that means is that in Tennessee, abortion is illegal and there are no exceptions for rape or for incest, uh, which makes this more problematic. Uh, and, you know, the abortion, uh, rather the Planned Parenthood clinic that we were at earlier today, they are technically open. They're able to provide services, but on their website, 
uh, they're explaining that appointments no longer exist because they don't know how much longer they're going to be able to keep their doors open. And this really becomes a problem not only for this clinic who is there to, um, you know, help women stay alive, but they also fear that this is going to create a healthcare crisis, a financial crisis, and a mental health crisis across this state, which will resonate across other states that are in the same position. We're going to get into uh, the details on the dangers surrounding this with an abortion rights coalition member uh, later on in the show. But I want to talk about the politics of this, Reggie, if we could. As you mentioned before, like states like California, Washington state have literally come forward immediately and said this will never happen in our state. We will never ban this and we will never punish uh, anyone traveling here in order to have safe and legal medical care uh, women's health medical care in our state. Um, can there be in, in states like Texas or in Tennessee, can there be ramifications for a woman who lives in that state, crosses a state line to go get an abortion elsewhere, maybe even an ectopic pregnancy at DNC that must happen in order to save her life? Can she then be prosecuted in some way? Some states are trying to do that in making it illegal to cross a state line. And anybody who assists in that, potentially somebody who organizes it or counsels on that, also trouble in the state of Oklahoma. You could be fined $10,000, potentially go to jail if you are found um, assisting with this. And it's a similar law that exists in Texas. That's why the Department of Justice uh, is coming out to say, look, interstate travel can't be infringed upon. That is a constitutional right. Uh, so there are going to be legal battles about this. But it's why, as you said, Illinois, California, most of New England, uh, Washington state are trying to, um, you know, increase their protections, not only for their own residents, but for women around the country to ensure that if they come, that they will be shielded from any criminal, um, you know, law that or a criminal charge that comes after them uh, in their own states. But it, realistically here, Jody, there are so many women in southern parts of this country that are low income, that are of right. color and don't have an ability to be able to get to these states. So even though there are states willing and accepting, it's just an impossible reality for so many women in this country. Horrifying, horrifying story. Hopefully it activates uh, the 101 million Americans who did not vote in the last uh, election. Uh, thank you so much for your time as always, Reggie. I have a feeling we'll be touching back with you over the next couple of weeks to keep updated on all of the happenings as the fallout continues from Roe versus Wade. Thanks for doing this. It is time to get scientific. We are leaning into science with our good friend Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty in emerging pathogens. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast and author of a number of books, including The Germ Code. We can learn a lot from Jason Tetro, and we're really excited to have you kick off the week with us here on the Mike Smith Show. Thanks for doing this, as always, my friend. Oh, my goodness. It's always such a joy to be joining you. Except we look forward to the day we, when we can have some fun with science because it's heavy subject matter here. People are exhausted after two plus years of a global pandemic. And on the heels of this, hopefully, as we uh, try to battle through these late stages of COVID-19, fingers crossed mm -hmm. that we eventually will get through this. We're talking monkeypox. Very, very scary to see the headlines increasing about this virus. Uh, and certainly hearing late last week that the World Health Organization is looking at perhaps escalating the alert about monkeypox. I do want to mm -hmm. get into this, but let's just get the update on COVID-19 first, if we could. 
where are we at in your from your learned perspective with that specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19? Where do you mm-hmm. see Canada right now uh, with this virus? So what's going to happen over the next little while is we're going to see BA4 or 5, uh, essentially another one of these Omicron lineages coming in. And if you haven't been protected in one of three or four different ways, because now it's no longer just simply vaccination, we have people who have been vaccinated, but it's been three months and some people have been vaccinated for, you know, it's been six months. Some people have already had a COVID infection. We're starting to get this sort of immunity mixing going on. And if you happen to be one of those individuals, then there's a very low likelihood that the Omicron 4-5 is going to cause you some great distress unless you're immunocompromised. We always have to add that. I mean, and, and, and that's something we are going to be doing forever. If, however, you have not been vaccinated, if, however, you simply have not come into contact with this virus, then it's the same deal as back in the beginning of 2020 because this virus is still a SARS virus. And if your immune system is naive, then you could essentially come down with a serious infection. And as we already know, it was about 10% of people who got it had either serious infections or hospitalizations. So the fact is, is if you haven't gotten yourself vaccinated by now, you really should. If you are at a point where you've had, say, three doses and maybe had BA. Okay. And and maybe you've had one of the COVID infections, uh, say like BA2 in April or maybe BA1 in January. I mean, you're probably not going to come down with a serious infection if you are exposed to the BA4-5. Um, if you actually had uh, four doses, it's not really going to help you all that much because the 4-5 have mutated so much that you're not really going to get any greater protection out of it. And this is one of the reasons why we're finally starting to see the Omicron versions of the vaccine coming out. And it might actually be really good just to wait, keep the mask on for a few more months and then get the Omicron uh, vaccine. Then you don't have to worry about anything. Okay, Jason, I think we just need to reiterate what you said there because it is so important. I get asked and, and challenged on this. I don't know if anybody follows me on Twitter at Jody Vance on Twitter, but I had a, I, p- I put out there, you know, I'm so relieved that Canada has, you know, over 80% of our population eligible for mm-hmm. vaccines have been fully vaccinated. So that's great news. Uh, we've even yeah. seen, um, it was a news story today that polling shows that, that Canada, the 11 countries, uh, that were looked at, including the UK and the US and Japan, that, that Canada is just behind Japan, an island nation, uh, in how COVID-19 was was managed. We, you know, when it comes to, mm-hmm. to deaths and, and it's because of vaccinations, like this is big. So when, and then when people are talking about, I'm six months out, I need my fourth dose, give me that fourth dose. The science is, is unclear as to whether there's any benefit for an otherwise healthy okay. younger person, right? Yeah, you're going to put me on the spot, aren't you? Okay. I am. Um, of course, so, that's what I do, Jason uh, Tetro. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Um, so let's let's just get into this, okay? Yeah. The vaccine was designed for the original lineage. And it did a really good job against the original lineage. Like we only needed 40% of the population vaccinated with two doses to be able to eliminate that particular version of the virus. Now, every time the virus changed, we call it a different Greek letter. What happened is that there were mutations that took away the ability of the vaccine to give us the immunity we need, okay? And so with every one of the different mutations that existed, we lost about 10%. 
So when we got to Delta, we were only at around 50 to 60% in terms of our ability to stop the virus. And so that's why we needed the booster to actually just bump up our antibodies enough that we could deal with it. Then came Omicron. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Delta had 10 mutations, all right? Omicron had 37. Wow. So as you can tell, all of a sudden, all of that wonderful immunity that we would have been given from the vaccines against the original lineage is all of a sudden gone. And just to give you a perspective as to the, the amount of reduction, it was a 30 times reduction in the ability of the vaccine to give us immunity to stop Omicron. And so more of the got- same vaccine wouldn't help. Right. Well, and it's getting well. And the fact is, it's getting worse because four and five have even more mutations that really render the vaccine against the original lineage almost inutile. And that's why we need to think about having that Omicron version of the vaccine, which hopefully will be, you know, universal after that, because then we can actually target the Omicron mutations as opposed to trying to just bump up the immune system to deal with it. I mean, the best way to explain it is this. Have you ever used a colander? Yes. Okay. Every one of those holes is a mutation. How many of those Uh, holes would you have to plug up to be able to keep water in the colander? Oh, Good analogy. This is why I dig the way you do science, Jason Tetro. Well, and I know our listeners do our listeners do too, and they want to get in on this. And, and our phone lines are back up. We were having some issues with our phone lines, but they're back up. So if you've got a question for Jason Tetro about COVID-19, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. You want to talk about vaccinations and and how they work and 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 fourth doses or or even the relevance of getting your first dose. It's never too late to get immunized, full stop. There is no downside. Get, there literally oh yeah. is no downside, right? Okay, so Jason- Get, get your dose, get your dose. That's all get I can your say. Dose. <laughs> Before we just go to break here, we I just want 30 seconds on this. When you've yeah. had three doses of COVID-19 vaccine here in Canada, mm-hmm. and you say you're in that colander, and so the immunity is falling out of that colander, do you still have the enough immunity to protect you from severe illness, hospitalization, or death with three doses? Oh, yeah. So we're all talking about right now the, um, the first response, the antibody response, right? Because if you have a good antibody response, then you don't feel any symptoms whatsoever. We, but most people, those who are not immunocompromised, if you've had any sort of exposure to this particular virus at a vaccine level, you're going to have that secondary response, the T-cell response that is going to prevent you from having severe infections. Excellent. If you do not have a good T-cell response, though, you are at higher risk of going to hospital. Absolutely. Right. Okay, we're continuing our chat with microbiologist Jason Tetro. He has a specialty in emerging pathogens. We're talking COVID-19 and vaccines and boosters and fourth doses. But we also want to talk quickly monkeypox before we go to the phone lines here. Jason, monkeypox Mm -hmm. update from you, please. Yeah, so um, as of May 2022, we have about 3,000 cases in 47 different countries. Before that, we would only have maybe a handful and maybe one or two different countries. Um, When you look at it from a genetic perspective, they all seem to be coming from the same source. So obviously, there's some kind of source in Nigeria that is leading to this outbreak. What's really strange, though, is that Normally, you would see about 100 cases per year in Nigeria, and we've only really seen about 15. So there's some kind of silent um, incubator in in Nigeria that needs to be found. So, of Mm -hmm. course, that's going to trigger people wondering if there's a a public health emergency. 
But when you actually look at what the WHO discussed, it was actually less about the virus and more about the stigma because it definitely seems to be isolated to a particular community. However, right. we already went through that a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember when Mumps was out in the club scene. Mm -hmm. uh, did mm -hmm. you by any chance stop going to clubs? No. <laughs> I didn't. No, did not. I did so, not. I mean, that that's really what it comes down to. Don't stigmatize right. people. Don't stigmatize people. And if you think that you might have a symptom, definitely get checked out. This is the key. I mean, and and checking ourselves for our wellness is part of our everyday. Thank you, COVID-19. Let's get back to that virus, SARS-CoV-2, uh, to mm -hmm. our phone line. 604-280-9898 is the number to call if you've got questions for Jason Tetro. We start with Deborah in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Hi, uh, Jody, and thank you, Dr. Uh, Tetros. I've had three vaccinations, and I'm wondering if I am a silent carrier of Omicron or any of the advanced um, variations. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, is my viral load dangerous to other people? I wear a mask everywhere. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, have you actually had in the infection? No. Well, then, no, you have no viral load. None at all. So the no. third vaccination was effective to reduce... No, well, yeah, okay, so he, I think we need to explain this. Viral load comes from the fact that when a virus gets inside of you, it'll reproduce inside of your body. And so... The viral load is the certain number of viruses per milliliter of blood or per gram of um, tissue, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. But in order for that to happen, you have actually had to be exposed to the virus and it would have to have some kind of establishment within your body. If you've had three vaccines, you've never had any symptoms and you've been wearing a mask, there's really been no opportunity for that virus to get inside of you to actually have any kind of viral load. So there's no worry whatsoever. Now, if you had COVID in the past, where you actually had the symptomologies and everything like that, mm -hmm. then there's a potential that the viral load will be inside of you for about three months. But at this point, you don't seem to be in any particular case where viral load is concerned. Okay. So my thinking is that um, way back when we had the first vaccination and just immediately or just before, um, we were told that we could be asymptomatic, which was you know, a very strong impetus to get vaccinated. That was for the original lineage, though. Yeah. Uh -huh. This is not the case with Delta or Omicron. They, uh, you don't see asymptomatic very much with respect to those two. Um, it, it's just the way that the virus now works. Um, with the ori original lineage, you could actually have asymptomatic infection, which was very similar to the original SARS back in 2003. Yeah. Um, it is mutated now, so that's more like um, the OC43 common cold versions, and you don't get asymptomatic OC43. Like you're sneezing, you're feeling kind of bad, you're throat is sore. So don't don't worry about that. I know that it's changed, but it's because the virus has actually changed in its ability to do pathogenesis. Let's continue down the phone line 604-280-9898 star 9898 a free call on your cell. Chris in Langley, you're up next for Jason Tetro. Hey guys, thanks for taking my call, Jody. Uh doctor, curious couple things uh two things. Uh one, you said that the original virus, we got to 40% vaccinated, and that basically got rid of that original lineage. Oh, yeah. Thought, Texas was I, a perfect example of that. Right, but I thought that the, the next uh, the variety or variant was, um, was a big part of why it kind of moved out more contagious, and it kind of squeezed out each lineage 
thereafter kind of squeezed out the previous as long as it was more infectious. Mm-hmm. And then the other question was um, was around uh, the, you said there was a 10% chance, we had a 10% chance if we're not protected by previous infection or or vaccination from getting uh, seriously ill or, or hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Do we have yeah. any numbers or uh, anything teased out on how uh, a person who's vaccinated or has received uh, uh, or had caught uh, COVID and what, what their chances? Because you can still go get serious, seriously ill. Mm-hmm. But what, yeah. what is that? Is it a, uh, quite a bit of a drop? Obviously it is, but I'm curious on what numbers those are. Do you know? Yeah, so... Let's just go to the original lineage. Um, if you remember Texas in May of 2021, it was basically gone. And, and they only had about a 40%. And it started to see that all over the United States. 40% vaccination rate, boom, you got rid of the original lineage. Then what ends up happening is alpha came, then beta, and then delta, and then omicron. And each one of those had different mutations that would actually um, a, a sort of resist, if you will, your immunity. And so now where we are at is that there are so many different mutations that occur. And remember, these mutations happen naturally. And coronaviruses are one of the most mutated uh, viruses that are out there. They have recombination enzymes. It's, It's crazy. So anyways, the fact of the matter is that by the time we get to Omicron, the original lineage vaccination is just not doing what we need it to do. And so, you know, that's where we are today. We're going to have the, um, uh, the, the, the Omicron vaccine. Um, now, in terms of the percentages, if you have no vaccination or no protection whatsoever and you get it, you have a 10% chance of getting um, some kind of severe infection. If, however, you have been vaccinated, then that goes to 2%. And then if you've been vaccinated and you've actually had one of the, vo- like a BA2, um, infection, then the likelihood is is that it'll be like 0.1 to 1% chance that you'll have a severe infection. So as you build your immunity, your risk of a severe infection goes down. And again, that only occurs if you have that secondary T-cell response. If you don't have that, you are at that 10% always, which is why we need to protect those individuals and make sure that if they don't have that particular immunity, we are wearing masks around them. And keeping those layers of protection, Jason, are so key. We've been talking about this for two plus years. In fact, you've been talking about the layers of protection, like wearing a scarf on a on an airplane yeah. to protect yourself <laughs> from any viruses for years and years and years. So oh, yeah. when we're talking about being fully immunized and having those layers of protection, wearing a mask when around people you don't know in small spaces, uh, washing your hands, staying home if feeling at all unwell, all very important pieces of the puzzle. Jason, as always, I thank you for your time. If you want uh, to ask Jason more questions, you can find him on social media. He's very active on Twitter. Jason Tetro is. As always, my friend, I appreciate you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, always a pleasure. It is that time of year. I get very busy filling in in the summer months as everybody gets to take a little well-earned vacation. I viscerally remember last year being right here on your radio, filling in with ice packs in my lap because of the heat dome. I think most of us will agree that the incredibly January-like June and spring, wet, wet spring that we have seen here predominantly in the south coast of BC, but really across the province, uh, will take it over the incredibly horrific wildfire season we witnessed last year. Uh, and And the heat dome is referenced. Now, yesterday... 
felt like a light switch was turned or uh, flipped and holy moly was it ever hot in the lower mainland it was really quite something feels like a bit of a heat wave a uh, little triggering for some kind of like when someone says atmospheric river we want to say how long is it coming for so how long will this heat dome heat heat wave not heat dome last here well our go-to is the one and only Christy Gordon, the uh, Global BC Senior Meteorologist. Christy, good to talk with you. Hi, Jody. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so, you always calm me down a little bit. I, I, I am a little triggered after last year's heat dome. I think we all are. Uh, never before experienced and hopefully not something that we'll see regularly here. Uh, this feels extra hot right now, but certainly not as hot as we felt a year ago. Absolutely. So by comparison, to give everyone that idea of the difference between the heat dome that we saw last year, areas like Pitt Meadows out through the Fraser Valley uh, hit 41 and a half degrees. That was last year. This year, hottest day really was yesterday. We'll, we'll wait to see how things sort of transpire today. We could be reaching the same temperatures as if yesterday, but uh, 32 by comparison. So we're talking about a 9, 10 degree difference compared to what we saw in that heat dome. And then the other big difference is the temperatures that we've been getting at night. You probably felt it last night, the relief of that heat. Temperatures dropped down to about 15, 16 degrees last night, and that gives everyone, their bodies, a chance to sort of recover from the heat during the day. Last year, we saw temperatures at night drop down to 20, 21 degrees. Those are daytime highs for, you know, this time of year. And so it just doesn't allow your body to get that relief. And then in addition, this little heat wave um, didn't last as long. So we sort of saw it ramp up on Friday. Saturday was hot. Sunday was very hot. Today will be very hot, but then that's going to be it. And then we'll get some relief on Tuesday. Let's go back to the overnight temperatures, Christy. I think that's a really important piece of this when people are concerned about their loved ones, their elders, people in vulnerable communities, uh, how your your body can't recover. And that's when things get dangerous, if not deadly. Um, but when there is issues with, you know, those temperatures being in the low 30s, some people it's very difficult for because we're not built for it here. Literally, our houses are not built with air conditioners in them. Um the dangerous highs are one thing, but but thankfully, what are the overnight lows like for tonight? What is what is in the forecast for tonight? So we're expecting similar to what we saw last night and even the potential for it to be a touch cooler. So, uh, you know, 13 to 16 degrees would be the range depending on where you're located. So certainly enough, I usually use the benchmark of 17 degrees. That's when I'm doing my forecasting. If we get into 17 degrees and above, that's when people really find it difficult to sleep. So that's sort of my benchmark. As long as we're below 17, it really does, for the most of us, allow us to get some relief. Okay, what's causing this heat? Um, So basically a ridge of high pressure. So generally um, these happen uh, throughout the year, um, but in particular in the summer when we get a ridge of high pressure. So that's an arc in the jet stream, the jet stream mean driving way up and over our province, pulling in that surge of heat from the south and sort of trapping that in. It's what we call a blocking ridge. And it doesn't move and it allows things to heat up. When we had the heat dome, though, it was a little bit different in that we had a surge of uh, moisture into the air as well as this blocking dome. So we not only had this blocking scenario, but it trapped it in from above and we had humidity. I don't know if you remember how humid and hot oh, it was. Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Where's this time, I mean, 
the humidity was, it was there, but not much. So when you get a temperature of, say, 31 degrees, it might feel like 32, maybe 33, but that's about it. Uh, when you ha- we had that heat dome, we had so much humidity trapped within that, it made it feel even hotter, and that was really tough, especially at night for, for people sleeping. So when it comes to the interior of British Columbia and and what we're seeing, and are we are we turning that corner? I mean, wildfire season starts much before where we're at right now. We would we would typically have seen more, but the, the honestly, I watch your forecast. I'm like, it's raining across the province. This has been really yeah. quite something this this spring and into into summer. But now mm-hmm. what we're seeing the combination of much higher temperatures suddenly and that exponentially higher uh, snowpack we've seen, are we worried about flooding moving forward here? So according to the BC River Forecast Center's uh, latest update, um, they are starting to become more optimistic now. Uh, A good half to three quarters of that upper snowpack has now melted. So, uh, and then this heat wave, so far things have have gone uh, fairly well. Uh, We're starting to see a significant amount of that um, uh, melt because of the heat. But the rivers right now, according to them, are still full and at capacity. And what we're watching is on Tuesday, so starting tomorrow into Wednesday also, we're going to have this big upper level low move over the province. So it's going to be a drastic change for everyone from low 30s to now low 20s. Everyone's going to be putting on sweaters and wondering what happened. Um, but that's, that's sort of seasonal for temperature-wise. But what is going to be exceptional is that we're going to have pockets of precipitation be really heavy at times. Again, that's sort of late Tuesday into Wednesday and with that thunderstorm. So when we get intense rain uh, on over sort of rivers that are swollen already, that's a problem, right? So it really depends on where those thunderstorms go. You and I talked about this last time, where those thunderstorms go, and all of a sudden these areas are susceptible to intense runoff. So that's really the main thing that they're watching Tuesday into Wednesday, and then they sort of feel beyond that. If we get through Tuesday and Wednesday, then they sort of feel that we're starting to get in the clear, that the rivers have now peaked, they're going to start to come down, the snow is, uh, for the most part, is melted, so we're, we're getting into a, a safer zone, that's for sure. Okay, you're, you're bringing my anxiety level down. I thank you for this because it's, you know, we, we last year it felt like it was, you know, that parked heat dome that stayed and stayed and stayed. And we also then got, you know, the rainy weather in the fall that was coming and staying and staying and staying. And so what we're seeing here is a real ebb and flow that we should be accustomed to here on the south coast of BC, maybe a little higher in temperatures for that short duration, and then maybe a little higher precipitation, you know, always those thunderstorms, I learned from you, Christy Gordon, always those thunderstorms coming through to sort of rejig and reset, you know, when the storms come through, we get the cooler front on the other side, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the big drop in temperature that we'll see. And I know that a lot of people will be wondering, oh my gosh, I don't want our summer to end. Because for a lot of people, this warmth has been nice. I mean, it's yeah, been yeah. a tough spring. We went from, it felt like uh, winter, right, straight into summer with this heat wave. And a lot of people were really enjoying that. So for all of you out there that are worried, um, we do have some sunshine on the way, but we don't have this big surge in heat. So we've got sort of Tuesday, Wednesday of cooler, uh, rainier conditions, but then we are going to see a bit of sunshine towards late, late in the week. But I have Great. to say, looking at the seasonal forecast, still when we look at the overall average for July and August, 
for southern BC, it still looks generally cooler than average and wetter than average. Those, that's what the long-range forecasts are showing. Now, keep in mind, long-range forecasts um, have a low accuracy rate just because they are long-range, yeah. as well as the fact that you can still get those ebb and flows, like you're, like you're saying. You can still get warmth and then cooler conditions. It's more so the average that that is explaining. So just a heads up, um, generally the average for southern BC is going to be the sort of cooler they say, uh, the models are saying cooler and wetter than average. Okay, so I'm taking my sweatsuit and my tarp when I go camping. Excellent. Good to know. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly what people need to be planning for is pretty much everything um, as we head into the next little while. But, uh, um, you know, stay tuned. I I always urge everyone to always make sure they're coming back to the forecast. Don't plan your long weekend camping trip on Monday, based on the forecast, you know, uh, on Monday, you need to keep tuning back in on Thursday and Friday for the update. I love that because you are using the science. And if it was guaranteed long range, we would never have weather events that put people in danger. So it's always to get, yeah. great to have you as a touchstone. Uh, Christy, mm-hmm. thanks for doing this as always. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Jody. And it's time to talk about abortion rights in Canada. Because the overturning of Roe versus Wade has many Canadians asking if, quote unquote, that could happen here. If there could be a turning back of the clock where body autonomy for women is concerned, women's health and the need for there to be access to all reproductive health for women here and abroad. We want to talk this through and connect with the executive director of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. Joyce Arthur is with us. Thank you so much for doing this, Joyce. Welcome. Thanks, Jody, for having me. Let's start with Friday and how that landed for your organization. What was the reaction there? Well, obviously, we've been expecting it and possibly not just for the last couple of months, but for the last you know, few decades, because the anti-choice yeah. movement in the U.S. has been working very hard for this day. Uh, but still, to have it actually happen is, is really, really devastating and horrifying. And, uh, and we just find the whole thing disgusting, even looking at the decision, uh, which I haven't read the whole thing. But I think, you know, in my opinion, uh, we're, we're talking about a bunch of Republican partisan judges um, making this decision outside the rule of law uh, with no regard for uh, accurate history, certainly no regard, even contempt uh, for women's rights, and just imposing uh, basically a religious, ideological, anti-drug viewpoint on America, and it's just horrific. Which will lead to increased deaths for women, and particularly women who live below the poverty line, particularly women of color. This is such an abhorrent move, it seems, as well as, I must add to this, uh, Joyce, that, that the mass majority of Americans do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Exactly. There's a majority support for Roe v. Wade. There always has been. So here again, the judges are going outside uh, popular opinion. And as you, know, as you know, their popularity approval rating has sunk a lot. But yeah, very important to understand that people are going to die because of this. And for various reasons, uh, I mean, sure, some people will be able to travel and, you know, get abortion pills in the mail, and that will certainly help a lot. 
but some people won't be able to travel. It'll just be too difficult. Uh, it costs money, and they can't get away. And, and yes, you're t- we're talking about low-income people, uh, people in the black communities in, in the South. And, you know, maternal mortality, it's always uh, the U.S. already has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, and it's worse uh, amongst black women. And they've uh, estimated that with this uh, new ban on abortion in many of the red states, uh, there's going to be at least about a 20 to 22 percent increase in maternal mortality across the board. And this is for several reasons. Uh, one is some people might uh, uh, resort to unsafe abortion, like the old traditional methods that are dangerous. Uh, but other people are going to be forced to carry to term. And pregnancy is actually dangerous. It's risky. It's like many, many times more dangerous than having an abortion. And uh, people do die from it or suffer very uh, serious injuries sometimes. So it's a very uh, um, terrible situation. We're with Joyce Arthur, Executive Director of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. We're going to get to rights here in Canada. But first, I'd like to also point out for those who might be uh, with with that religious ideology, somebody whose beliefs, whose religious beliefs uh, have them feeling like uh, life begins at conception. A reminder here for how this ban lands for those who are very much wanting to have a child and yet find themselves in a position of needing to have intervention on an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage. And I will tell you, Joyce, I I would have preferred to be able to tell you this prior to our interview here, but I've been very open with the fact that I've had three miscarriages prior to two years of fertility treatment that led me to my one miracle of a baby. So, but I did need a DNC on one of those miscarriages that would not be allowed in some of these states in the United States right now. Exactly. And I'm sorry to hear about your experience, Jody. This is a real concern, not just for people who might be seeking abortions, but anyone, any pregnant person, because what happens when you have a ban on abortion, it makes any kind of pregnancy complication or miscarriage, stillbirth, etc., uh, a reason to suspect uh, that yeah. someone might be having an abortion. And also, if there's, uh, there's been many cases already, like in, across, around the world, where a woman is miscarrying at, say, 15, 17, 19 weeks before fetal viability, when there's no hope for the fetus, but as long as there's a, a fetal heartbeat, uh, doctors can't intervene if there's an abortion ban. And that yeah, creates a risk of infection and sepsis, which is a very fast-moving, dangerous infection that can kill people. And uh, people might recall the dentist in, in uh in Ireland, who died a few years ago, Savita Halapanavar. Yeah. And uh, this is kind of thing is happening again. And ectopic pregnancies obviously are a very, very dangerous situation as well. The only option is to, to remove that pregnancy as soon as possible. It's completely non-viable. And the fact that um, uh, fetuses and embryos, uh, even ones that are doomed to any kind of hope of survival, are taking precedence over the actual right to life of women is just uh, appalling. It really is something that twists your brain around. It's I just can't even... I saw a story out of Malta, a couple who went on a baby moon, a very much wanted pregnancy, mm-hmm. and, and she began to miscarry, and they literally had to, t- to risk her life and get her to Spain in order to uh, properly address the health issue that she was experiencing, the terror and the sadness associated with that. There's a lot to this. Uh, we're with Joyce Arthur, who's the Executive Director of Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. Joyce, let's talk about here in Canada. I went to your website and I read the headline that says, we do not need to enshrine abortion rights into law here in Canada. Why is that? Well, you know, we haven't had a law at all since our law was struck down in 1988 by the Supreme Court. 
And uh, they, they tried to pass a new law that then conservative government, and it failed. And we're glad it failed. Our slogan at the time was no new law. And the reason why is because uh, abortion is uh, ultimately a health care procedure. We don't have laws, separate laws for like heart surgery or, or appendectomy or things like that. Why do we need a law on abortion? And uh, we've always been proud of, of Canada's lack of a law because it allows us to focus on access, improving access, and integrating abortion into the healthcare system. And the thing is, even if we did have a law, let's say we you know, wanted a, like a really good law, a positive law that would guarantee abortion access and rights and, and so on, um, well, there's danger there because there's always a risk that such a law could be interfered with. So like mm-hmm. during the legislative process when it's being passed, all the debates and consultations and anti-choice MPs could propose amendments, and then you could end up with a law with restrictions or various criteria. And that's what we don't want. And even if we did end up with like a really good law, it could be subject to attack uh, in later years. And we don't want to give the anti-choice movement some kind of foundation that they could build on or dismantle, you know, whichever way it works. So we just feel that uh, we need to use the tools that we have, which uh, consist of the Canada Health Act, uh, the National Standards Act for Healthcare, which needs to be better enforced for abortion care. Currently, abortion care does not meet really any of the principles of the Canada Health Act in terms of accessibility and full funding. So we need to work on that. We need more funding. We're calling on the government to expand um, permanently reproductive health care and sexual health care, including abortion funding for all the provinces so that uh, clinics can expand and maybe new clinics can open and more doctors can start providing. So it's just such a piecemeal um, approach now in terms of access. It's very, very poor access outside most major cities in Canada. If women and allies in Canada want to help with uh, championing that cause that you just laid out so beautifully, uh, where do they go? Well, there's lots of uh, pro-choice groups working on these issues hard, and uh, you know you can go into their page and donate or uh, find out how you can help. And just simple things like you know um, emailing your your local elected representative, uh, emailing the you know, prime minister and the health minister, and asking for these things. Uh, we want the Liberals to fulfill their promises that they made in the um, uh, election last year. They uh, promised the various things around sexual and reproductive health care and abortion. So people uh, could press them on that. Uh, we have a petition uh, on Change.org online that people can find. Um, it's uh, to, you know, pressuring the Liberals to fulfill those promises and more. So uh, things like that are really helpful. And uh, just expressing yourself, expressing Uh, your anger and your outrage and your concerns. Make sure that your elected officials know where you stand. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, Joyce. And and please do keep us posted if anything uh, changes here in Canada. We're going to obviously stay on this story as it continues to unfold and reactions continue to come in. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jody. Canadians, as we're winding down the school year and looking ahead to summer break, this is the time of year we're all like, yay! Are we, though? It's been a tough couple of years, to say the least. And a new Angus Reid poll is showing that many Canadians are feeling as though they're worse off now than they were even a year ago, this time last year. Shachi Curl, the president of Angus Reid Institute, joins me on the line. Hello there. Hello, Jody. It's great to talk with you. I'm optimistic, but I guess I'm not with the majority of Canadians particularly when it comes to people's personal situations, their own personal financial situation and the future of the country. Um, We're in a place where people are feeling uh, not as good as they have been in in past years. So we're seeing, as I say, uh, and as the data reflect in today's uh, survey results, 
um, a greater level of pessimism heading into looking forward uh, at the next year where people are not feeling particularly optimistic either about the state of the country or about their own uh, their own personal lives their own their own lives and their own situations in the country so much of that and yes the weather's gotten a little brighter uh, hopefully we're coming out of the worst uh, of this pandemic, hopefully, but who knows? Who knows? Uh, but but really, um, what we're seeing on on the personal finance front, cost of living, inflation. What does that mean? If you're somebody who bought in to the market uh, maybe a year ago, two or three years ago, you put everything you had uh, into your home, and now you are facing. Uh, the double jeopardy of rising mortgage rates and a cooling housing market, that's got you freaked out. If you're a small business owner, a restaurant owner, you are looking right now at, at some pretty dire circumstances, as you well know, around labor shortages, but also what happens when Canadians start to tighten their belts. So, yeah. you know, initially the problem was getting people fed who wanted to be fed or serving people in the hospitality industry who wanted to be served well, what if the custom starts to dry up with it? So there are some jitters and some queasy stomachs right now just around what the future is going to bring. It feels very uncertain. Uncertainty for sure. I'm trying to be the cup half full person, but it is hard to do that when we are looking at what you just laid out there. The, the, those who, when you say put everything they had into purchasing a, a, a home, Sometimes everything they had and too much more when borrowing money was basically free and now staring down something that might, you know, upend the entire apple cart. Uh, and, and that is incredibly stressful. The healthcare system hampered by delays and staffing shortages has many feeling, you know, on edge. And then we get to the politics and let's do that for a couple of minutes here talking about where Canadians are with regard to how they feel about government. Well, and right now they're not they're not feeling too good about uh, about the prime minister. Although that's not changed very much. Uh, those who love him still love him. Those who are not very happy with him are a little more unhappy than they have been in recent years. Uh, and all of that against the backdrop of uh, a leadership race on the other side of of the political spectrum with the conservatives. And you see two front runners with two very different paths to victory. One who might be able to pivot to the center a little bit more, that Jean Charest, uh, former premier of Quebec, former longtime conservative uh, politician, but uh, at the same time could risk splitting his own party. On the other hand, you've got Pierre Poiliev, who, who you know, uh, manages to have a, a massive uh, social media presence, is packing rooms at rallies. People feel very passionate about him but really faces a ceiling or is tapped out of room to grow unless he pivots even further uh, and starts courting past people's party uh, supporters. And so uh, if you are, uh, if you're somebody who's been dealing and, and watching uh, the current government that we have over the course of seven years and you go, yeah, it's okay, but I wish I had an alternative. Uh, your alternative may be somebody who, who wants to, to pivot even further further to, to sort of an angry, uh, right, uh, PPC courting, hard conservative courting uh, style, uh, which, which only serves to, to broaden the chasm even further. 
In case you want to check out the poll in its entirety, angusread.org, great resource. There's a lot to chew on on that website. We're with Shachi Curl, the president of Angus Reed Institute. And, and politics is a big piece of the feeling of comfort or pessimism when it comes to citizens, because that's, I mean, politics has really become such a glaring center on so many world stages, really, Shachi, that people are perhaps more engaged or, or skipping along the clickbaity headlines in ways that, that could lead them to being really shaken to the core about where this might land on their kitchen table, particularly with inflation and gas prices and housing affordability and homelessness and opioid crisis on top of pandemics and maybe monkeypox as well. Well, and look at what's happening south of the border and how so many conversations, so many debates, so many divisions and, and schisms south of the border are finding their way into the political conversation here. You can't get away from it. So, um, you know, there's uh, obviously a notable concern uh, given the the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade uh, in the United States yesterday. We need to be really clear. It has absolutely zero legislative effect on what's happening in this country. And yet people yes. are totally galvanized by it. And it and it gets into our we're hearing from our leaders around it, etc. Same thing we've seen on the gun control debate. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I don't, I don't know, um, Jody, how much you've been covering or, or, or following, but I've certainly kept a keen eye on the inquiry uh, coming out of Nova Scotia, Indeed. where you now get- have, go ahead. We're going to get in, into that tomorrow with Sandy Garasino. We're going to dig deep. Unfortunately, I'm up against the clock. You got to come back and, and talk this through more. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to dive in with you a little deeper, Shachi. Only one uh, segment is never enough with you and I. Thank you for doing this. Hey, my dear. This next conversation is one that's going to go in a number of directions. The jumping off point was actually, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed uh, yesterday evening, and I came across a story about little libraries. You know those little libraries, the ones that are found all over the Lower Mainland, the the bookshelves on street corners where you take a book, you leave a book. They're really cool. Uh, they're, they're places that are so trusting and neat. Well, one of those was actually cleared out on Saturday night and uh, all those varied books were removed and replaced. And what they were replaced with is rather curious. <laughs> to tell the tale, let's bring in Leslie Hertig, who also happens to be the artistic director for the Vancouver Writers Festival. Leslie, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Hi, Jody. I rolled hey. by and saw your tweet and I was like, oh, this is funny. I need you to tell our listener the tale of your little library. Sure. Well, this is a little library that was part of an assignment that my son received in high school to think of a way to create community. And he decided that a little library would be the perfect thing. So up it went, and it was very popular from the moment we erected it. It was always filled by people walking past. Neighbors would come and browse, leave a book, take a book, as you said already. And uh, I noticed on Sunday morning when I went out that all the books that had been in there the night before were gone, and instead handfuls of tiny, or what I guess you would call pocket New Testaments and Psalms. Um, They were all wrapped in plastic, and so I just sent out a little tweet saying, hey, next time if you're going to put all these in here, maybe consider don't wrapping them in plastic, because uh, it made it hard for me to do my recycling afterwards. I thought that was perfectly toned, honestly. 
It's like, you can leave that book there, leave the New Testament there, but don't remove the other books. That's right. And don't leave that many of them. (laughs) Leave one. Yeah. (laughs) And and somebody will undoubtedly pick it up. Yes. Yes. So, Leslie, this is one of those things where, uh, one of those instances where maybe the person who did that might be listening. What would you say to somebody who would would leave uh, that type of a not-so-subtle message in a place in a space that is rooted in what the what the New Testament might actually teach. I'm not well versed in it, but I would think that, first of all, removing all those other books, which kind of is tantamount to stealing, uh, would be step one in what not to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, guess I guess I should start by saying I don't have a security camera. I can't guarantee that it was the same person that removed all the books that also put these other books in there. But assuming that it was, um, what I would say to them is, this is a community library, like most libraries. It's right. shared by everyone. And everyone has different tastes in what they read and what they want to gain knowledge from. Um, I would just ask for respect when putting anything into someone's little library. Think about it first. Definitely think about it first. And with all the book banning we're seeing uh, south of the border currently, I love seeing Mm -hmm. that those books spike on the selling list. Because if somebody's banning a book, that's a book that we should all probably be reading. Uh, Speaking of reading, Leslie, let's talk about something very cool. It's happening this fall. It's back in person. I'm so excited for the 35th anniversary of the Vancouver Writers Festival. Tell us everything. Absolutely, Jody. We are excited to be celebrating our 35th anniversary. We're going to be having an 80s dance party in September to kick things off at the Roxy. Um, not at the Roxy. Oh, my goodness. At the Fox. That's quite a different event at the Roxy. Um, <laughs> I would have gone Roxy. to the Roxy, too, though. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. the 80s dance um, parties did happen there, just to be clear. There we go. True. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to say, actually, timing is good because today we have reached released our fall reading list and you can find that on our website you can find it um, certainly at all book warehouse locations and also in front of Festival House on Granville Island. It's a list of all the amazing authors that will be coming to the festival and also announcing our guest curator Omar El Akkad who uh, won the Scotia Giller Prize last year and so we're, we're just excited we're excited about the events we're putting together and you know conversations like the one we have once we'll be having on our stage it touches upon um, what you were saying earlier, just about um, needing to make sure that community are all banding together, that we are tolerant of one another and one another's reading, um, knowledge that we're seeking. Um, I, think, I think these are important conversations for us as society to be having right now. I agree with you. A Vancouver Writers Festival is something special. Honestly, uh, Granville Island this fall, October 17th to 23rd. And that summer reading list, I actually have a friend on the summer reading list. I'm very proud of my my friend, Tara McGuire, who has written a yes. book that is 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 fa- uh, fiction and nonfiction coupled together in the story mm-hmm. of how she lost her son, Holden, much beloved Holden Courage, who uh, died of, a, of an opioid uh, overdose, a fentanyl overdose, uh, and 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 the tragic story of of Holden's life and death, but but coupled together with the mother's struggle and trauma with that, which is prevalent across Canada right now in the mm-hmm. crisis that we are witnessing. So I just given given Tara's book a little bit of a plug because it is uh, going to print. Absolutely. 
I saw the cover. I'm so excited uh, for her uh, to pour her heart out. I got an advanced copy. That's on my summer reading list for sure. Uh, so where again, uh, Leslie, can people get that summer reading list? It's on our website, Vancouver Writers is- Fest. It's uh, writersfest.bc.ca. It is also on Granville Island in front of Festival House, our home office. And you will find it in any book warehouse location, as well as some J.J. Bean locations, too. Now, going back to how we started this topic of conversation, I love that your son did this as, as part of, of an assignment to, to create a, a little library. If somebody's mm-hmm. thinking about doing one near their home, any tips for them? Yeah, um, you know, I have to admit, we didn't ask permission to put it on a city boulevard first, and I suppose it could be removed at any time. So um, I'm not sure there are city bylaws around how to put up a, um, a little library, so try to keep it on your property if you can. But if you go online, there are a ton of different designs that are just available that people have posted, and that's what he used. And um, I, I see them everywhere now in all shapes and sizes. I think they're wonderful. And it's not just in Vancouver. It's all around the world you'll find little libraries now. It's just such a great initiative. I've got a couple in my neighborhood and I stock them with good books because the best part about reading a book is that you can share that book once you're done reading it. Uh, I love the idea of of giving them away, sharing them, donating them, giving them to the next good home with a recommendation, maybe a little notation in in the front cover to to show where it was first loved, if you will. Leslie, thank you for your time. Appreciate you. you. 